Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 951. On today's episode, we do our best to wrangle the mountain of latest baseball news, and you know there's plenty. First up, David Lorelow welcomes Matt Hicks, radio broadcaster for the Texas Rangers, and Shannon Dreyer, ESPN radio journalist covering the Seattle Mariners. David asks Matt and Shannon about their respective clubs joining the recent spending sprees, including Robbie Ray, Marcus Simeon, and a Seeger swap. We also hear about things like Chris Young's important impact on the Rangers, what Scott's service means to the Mariners, big rivalries for each team both in division and otherwise, and just how unexpected and sudden these moves were from Texas. So what's the Rangers' plan here? What is the long-term plan? Because we knew the Mariners had a very established, we're going to grow the farm, grow the players, take the step back. But, but what are the Rangers doing? Because we didn't quite see it. Never once did anybody say that we were going to go out there and spend half a billion and more in an off-season <laughs> to turn this around. So I, I've got to give it to them on that one. In the second half, Ben Clemens and Jason Martinez get together to try and break down what happened this week. They discuss the flurry of moves, as well as who the lockout will be hardest for, and what an expanded playoff format could look like. We also hear about the negotiating concept of brinksmanship, and Ben and Jason consider what a break from the busy season could feel like. Hey, I'll I'll take a break. Uh, I need you know I'd be happy to take a break. And where you say, okay, I don't even have to pay attention to to my notifications because nothing is going to happen. And that yeah. right right now that's only, that's pretty much only limited to Christmas, maybe Chris, Christmas Eve. Right, and, and mean, even then, it's like there's stuff that does. AJ Preller's lurking. Yeah, it can happen, but I think in the last few years, I think they've all kind of. I don't know if they've they've had to actually have have to say it to each other, but I think they all kind of know like, hey, let's just take a break on yeah on these three or four holidays. But before we get to these talks, I must encourage you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. It is the best place to get your Fangraphs merch, as well as an ad-free membership, which is undeniably both the best way to browse and to support the site. They also make great gifts for a baseball-loving friend, or for yourself. It is because of the help of our members that we can continue to bring you the baseball coverage that we do. Thank you for everything. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guests are Matt Hicks, radio broadcaster for the Texas Rangers, and Shannon Dreyer from ESPN Seattle. Matt, Shannon, thanks for coming on to uh, Fangraphs Audio. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Matt, I think we should start with you because uh, a lot of people around the country, I think, are pretty shocked by just how much the Rangers have done, just how much money they have spent in the last few days on free agents. Are you surprised? Well, I'm not surprised that this kind of activity has happened. I think the the money figure, though, probably is something that surprises everyone. And as we are talking right now, as we are, are putting all of this together, Marcus Simeon is in the building. I'm actually at Globe Life Field, and Marcus Simeon is in the building conducting a press conference right now with our manager, Chris Woodward. Chris Young and John Daniels are there, as is uh, Simeon's agent, Scott Boris. And there are quite a few media that are here. And, and this has definitely caused quite the stir of excitement for Ranger baseball in 2022. And very understandably so. And jumping back, Matt, to me saying that a lot of people were shocked or surprised, is that the team arguably is not ready to contend quite yet, even with these additions. Do you think that is accurate? And do you think that that is something that is going to change? 
that the, the Rangers are going to continue to add this winter? Well, I'll start by saying this. I think that the front office believes, when, when you use the word contend, you know, what exactly does that mean? Uh, contend for a playoff spot? I'm not sure, but certainly with all of these moves that have been made to date, and it certainly looks like the front office is not done making moves, they certainly intend to make a lot of noise in the American League West and and perhaps try to compete for one of those wildcard spots. I mean, um, you know, this is this is a big move, landing not only Simeon, but, uh, you know, according to reports, getting Seager earlier today. There was uh, a press conference with the addition of Cole Calhoun getting John Gray, and they're not done. You know, the Rangers are being linked now to the potential of getting a starting pitcher, perhaps from the Cincinnati Reds. They're also being linked in reports to Matt Olson out of Oakland. So, you know, right now it's hard to say. There's still a long ways to go in the offseason. And, of course, we've only got a few hours left before what could be a moratorium on any kind of player movement, what with the impending lockout. But um, I, I think that going and spending this much money and landing these elite players, the team intends to compete at a very high level, I believe, in 2022. Yeah, with the, the Reds rumors and the Matt Olson rumors in mind, do the Rangers have you know pieces to trade to acquire players of that, that caliber? Well, one of the things that you have to look at is who, who's being displaced by some of these acquisitions. And they're, they're guys then that you necessarily wouldn't think might have a spot with the big league club. But remember, too, that we're, and we're kind of in an odd situation here. The Rangers last year dealt away some big names and really shored up their minor league system. And so like a name that comes to mind for me, a guy in the minors that the Rangers actually drafted, but now that we've got Marcus Simeon in the fold and, and it certainly looks like Corey Seager, what happens to a Justin Foscue? You know, a guy who can hit a guy who's a second baseman by trade, is there a future for him now in the organization? And I was thinking about this here over the last couple of days. You know, in, in this day and age of baseball, and it's probably been this way for the last 15, 20 years, if you can hit, I mean, if you can just flat out hit, an organization will find a spot for you. So the Rangers have certainly shown over the last few seasons that if you can hit, we'll we'll find a spot for you defensively, and we'll move guys around maybe to spots that they haven't played or they're not all that familiar with, just to kind of keep their bat uh, somehow in the lineup. You take a look at what the club has done with Isaiah Kiner-Falefa over the last few years. Remember, he got moved to catcher for a while, and he actually caught some in the big leagues. And so, you know, I think that you've got some displaced guys at the big league level, and perhaps there are going to be more, and you've got quite a stock of high-level prospects in the minor leagues that could go into some of these deals that the Rangers are being linked to. No, understandably so, and Foscu is certainly a fantastic prospect. Some of the pitching prospects that the team has are also promising. A big issue being if you do trade some of these guys away, it's, you know, bringing in the, the new talent, you know, to supplement, you know, what they have now is going to be rough in upcoming years. A quick note here that for those of you wondering why we've had all Matt and uh, no Shannon, we were having technical issues, but I think that we have Shannon back. Shannon, I think that you were at a press conference earlier today. 
I was, but since we did have that extended period of Matt right there, I do need to throw in right now that every time that the Rangers had come to Seattle, take out 2020 and possibly in 19, we would ask Matt and Eric Nadell, so what's the Rangers plan here? What is the long-term plan? Because we knew the Mariners had a very established, we're going to grow the farm, grow the players, take the step back. But, but what are the Rangers doing? Because we didn't quite see it. Never once did anybody say that we were going to go out there and spend half a billion and more in an off season <laughs> to turn this around. So I, I've got to give it to them on that one. Uh, surprise of the off season. Yeah, yeah we certainly, uh, I, I don't think anybody anticipated the, uh, the dollar figure that we're seeing right now. No question. So Robbie Ray just signed and was uh, introduced today. How big of a deal is that for the Mariners? It's huge. It's big in a lot of uh, different respects and that this was the offseason that they had targeted to make some big moves. And with the way that this offseason has gone and it's been so unconventional and that you didn't know what was going to happen with these uh, kind of false deadlines, you don't have to sign before the lockout. But uh, apparently having that deadline has accelerated some things. To see some of the names of some targets come off the board, and Marcus Simeon to a large extent was. I don't believe they actually offered with him, but they did very much like him. The fan base, you could tell, were getting very, very nervous when they saw the big names, the big contracts start to go out. Well, when are the Mariners going to make their big move? But Jerry Depoto had been very, very upfront about what he was looking for. And if you'd looked at the moves that had happened, uh, really, Simeon was the only one that you kind of looked at and said, well, that looks like one that possibly got away. So the panic was premature, but it was still very reassuring to see that, A, that they could go out and they could throw that big contract out there, and B, that the player would take it. And uh, what you're left with is something that the Seattle Mariners have not had for some time, and that is a strikeout pitcher. You have to go back to kind of the heyday of King Felix and Felix Hernandez, and he wasn't Felix Hernandez at the end, so it's been a while. But to have that dominant guy atop the rotation, they've had good pitchers, but to have, I like to call it a, a guy that a team can look to and know that that is their win day when this guy is on the hill, uh, they certainly should have that with Robbie Ray. So to see them land an impact player of that magnitude for the first time in a long time and hopefully the first of now we are in the stage of the rebuild that we are going to go out and start adding and adding in a big way to what we have built to see them able to accomplish that uh, very, very important. And we certainly are no longer in a rebuild in Seattle as this was a 90 win team this year, you know, very nearly made the playoffs. So Ray is a huge addition in large part, though, he is replacing another pitcher who, you know, who left. You say Kikuchi maybe isn't quite the talent that Ray is, but I was somewhat surprised when he did not uh, stay in Seattle. Well, I was too in that it seemed like it would probably not be a bad deal to stick around for $13 million for one year, but he is a Scott Boris client. And with what we are seeing right now with the contracts that are flying around there, I mean, James Paxton, who probably won't pitch until mid-season at best, a $10 million contract. Uh, with the Red Sox, from what we're hearing, uh, I think that the pitching market uh, was ripe for Kikuchi to get an, another payday elsewhere. If, if you don't know about it, it was a strange contract in that when it was signed, it was three years. And then 
Uh, the team had four one-year options at $16 million that they could pick up, but you had to pick up all four. If not, it then turned into a player option one year for 13, and Kikuchi turned that down. You know, as for what he did, he flashed some brilliance early on last year. He's made a ton of adjustments in his career with the Mariners, but in the second half, he fell off of a cliff. And, uh, you know, you put it all together, and, and like Ray, he's you know 95 plus from when he is on from the left side, but the consistency and being able to put it together start to start to start. We certainly didn't see that in the first half. And to be honest with you, the only time we saw that with consistency was in the first half of last year. The second half was disastrous. And even without Kikuchi, you know, there is Ray, there's the, you know, very underrated Marco Gonzalez, Flexen, you know, Logan Gilbert is there. But Matt, John Gray is, of course, uh, new to the Rangers. Is there enough pitching around him now? You know, when I look at the depth charts, I see Dane Dunning, who is really unproven. You know, Taylor Hearn really stepped it up, but still has a lot to show. You know, Spencer Howard is young. Are we going to see pitchers like Jack Leiter and Cole Wynn this season? Well, I think the direct answer to that is no. I, I don't think that's the plan to have either Leiter or Wynn uh, appear with the Rangers in 2022. But again, I could be surprised. I could be very wrong on that. You know, we got to see a lot of young guys toward the end of the season last year who may or may not figure into the plans. Guys like AJ, Alexi, and, and Glenn Otto, who, and especially in Alexi's case, really showed some flashes of brilliance. Uh, and a guy who was unflappable on the mound when it came to his composure. So spring training will certainly, for whatever length of spring training we have, give some of these guys an opportunity to, uh, to crack that rotation. So the Rangers were really happy in the improvement Taylor Hearn made, especially in the second half of the season. And, uh, you know, you talk to anybody on the staff and they'll tell you that uh, they thought that Taylor Hearn uh, was probably the best story of, from the pitching for the club last year in terms of the leaps and, and strides that he made toward becoming a regular uh, starter. So there's not a whole lot that's around right now. Dane Dunning, I thought, is the kind of guy that uh, he sort of had shackles on him last year, uh, you know, based upon things that had happened with COVID last season that he had, or the only season that he had with the White Sox, he only made seven starts. So the Rangers last year were very careful about how he was used and how many innings he pitched. And they pretty much got him to the end of the season where they wanted him to finish in terms of his workload. And in 2022, I don't think that restriction is going to be on Dane Dunning. And to me, he's the kind of guy that can be a middle of the rotation toward the bottom of the rotation, innings eating a guy that can give you some depth and is going to keep you in ball games. And I think too, that the, you know, the Rangers thought that he made some forward progress last year and would hope that that would continue in 2022. So, you know, I would, I would count Dunning and Hearn in the rotation right now, along with Gray. But again, the Rangers are out there reportedly looking for another starter. But again, I think that there are some guys that are probably ahead of the line in terms of readiness for the big leagues uh, compared to the Cole Wins and, and Jack Leiters in the organization. Yeah, Shannon mentioned how Mariners fans were maybe getting ready to panic before they finally made a few moves. 
Do you think that Rangers fans are going to begin panicking if more moves do not happen? You know, obviously the lockout, which seems imminent, you know, we're recording this maybe, what, eight hours before, you know, that is likely to happen. But say it gets settled in in a week's time, and then the Rangers just sit there and wait as other guys go off the board. Will there be a sense of panic? Or do you think Rangers fans think, hey, we've already gotten so much better that it doesn't matter? I think the latter is definitely the case. There's an incredible amount of excitement generated by Simeon and Seeger. People in the know know that Cole Cole Calhoun's one of my favorite players of all time. Uh, And I've said this during broadcast, uh, Cole Calhoun for me in the the American League when he was with the Angels uh, and Joe Panic in the National League when he was with the Giants, two of my favorite players not in a Ranger uniform, just because those guys to me are the kinds of guys that get the absolute most uh, out of their ability. And I think that maybe the Rangers are thinking that uh, Cole Calhoun can rebound from uh, the injuries that, that he suffered with the Diamondbacks last year. You know, he had one knee injury and two hamstring injuries to the same leg where he actually had surgery uh, to remove a portion of his hamstring. And, and uh, so he didn't see much time last year, but the Rangers obviously feel as though he can be healthy, you know, by spring training, fully healthy and a guy that can play in the outfield. Uh, and and have that kind of heavy bat, maybe not great batting average, but a guy who's got a keen eye who can hit the, the long ball. And then with the addition of John Gray, too. So even if no other moves are made, I think that the Ranger fan base, which had essentially gone to sleep uh, toward the end of the 2021 season, and like, man, are we going to have to endure another year, you know, like we've had to endure over the last two or three seasons, really not expecting a whole lot to be done this off season until this flurry of activity uh, here in the span of a couple of days. Now the fan base is completely energized. They can't wait for spring training to get started. They can't wait for the season to get started. And I don't think that'll go away, even if there are no other additions. And before we jump back to Shannon, how much rivalry, Matt, is there between the Rangers and Astros? When the gap starts to close and the Rangers maybe are, well, eventually may become as good of a team as the Astros, how important will that be to the two fan bases? Well, I think it'll be very important if the gap closes and the teams are, you know, roughly on even keel. Now, I, I don't think that maybe that's the case right now, but it certainly could be the case. But, you know, when I joined the Rangers uh, back in the 2012 season, 2012, 2013, 2014, the Rangers were completely dominant in the series between the two clubs. I think the 2013 season, the Rangers won 17 of the 19 meetings uh, between the two teams. And, and so it, it wasn't, it didn't feel like a rivalry then because the Rangers were so dominant. And here in, in the last, you know, four or five years, it's been the other way around. I know that, you know, back in, in 12, 13 and 14, you would see tons of Ranger fans in games down at Minute Maid Park, and you would see no Astros fans across the street over at Globe Life Park. It just didn't exist. Now, you know, you have tons of Astros fans coming up here to Arlington to watch these games, and you don't see Ranger fans down in Houston. So I think that if we can get back to being at least close to being level with Houston, then I think you'll see that rivalry rekindled, and I think you'll see Ranger fans starting to travel down to Houston. 
Yeah, Shannon, who is the Mariner's biggest rival as we speak? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> I think probably the games that get uh, the most heated as far as the fans go, I wouldn't say it's their biggest rival, but rivalry, but uh, the Toronto Blue Jays, believe it or not, when they would come down, they would buy out most of the park uh, before COVID. And so those games would have a definite, de de different energy to them. Uh, they don't like the Astros. They don't like the Astros because of the, the trash cans and, and the cheating and everything along those lines. That's something that you definitely feel from time to time. It's a topic that we have brought up on um, the pregame show on the roundtable is, you know, what does it take to get a rivalry? I wouldn't say there really is much of a rivalry. And one of the things that we kind of decided it, it had to be was there had to be something personal. And there was a little of that with the A's this year when Cole Irvin made some comments after an early game and that no team should give up hits to a team like that. No disrespect meant. And then the Mariners you know, proceeded to pound him the next four games he started against him uh, that year. So uh, this year. So along those lines, there are, I think, little kind of skirmishes here. But being up in this far northwest corner, there's no real natural rivalry. And I think sometimes little things break out here and there. So the uh, Texas Rangers gained a Seager very recently. The Seattle Mariners have lost a Seager. I assume he is not coming back to Seattle. What was his legacy there? And who is the third baseman for the Mariners in 2022? Well, Kyle Seager, you know, obviously a, a longtime Mariner, a lifelong Mariner up until uh, he wasn't. And you don't have many players that spend 10, 11 years with one team anymore. So uh, he's a player that Mariners fans watched grow up and uh, saw him become an all-star, saw him win a gold glove and saw him. They don't have a captain, but he was the guy that his teammates called captain. So there's always uh, going to be that connection with Kyle Seeger and a fan base that uh, loved him because he was one of their own. Spent a lot of time in the Pacific Northwest, actually lived a couple of off seasons up there and not many players do that. So uh, you know, that is kind of who it is with the fan base. There have been a lot of uh, comments that he will be in the Mariners Hall of Fame someday on the field. And what they are looking to replace right now is, uh, you know, the pop. That is something that was different about him last season. He definitely uh, was hitting a lot more home runs and some aspects was selling out for that. If you look at his overall numbers and his WRC plus, you could tell that he sacrificed quite a bit to get that power, but that's what the Mariners needed. He sat in the middle of the order, and he said as long as he was in the middle of the order, he was going to do his best to drive in those runs. He's not somebody who's into the advanced uh, metrics or statistics or anything like that. He'll take his 100 RBIs and 40 home runs and be happy with that, and, and just kind of saw that as the profile of what he needed it to be in the middle of the order, which if you take it back a, a bit, when he was first drafted, the thought was, He'd be a second baseman if, uh, or more of a utility player until Dustin Ackley couldn't be the second baseman anymore. And he played a year there and then was told he'd need to play third base. And along those lines, that's when he got bigger. He decided that as a third baseman, I can't have a second baseman body and I, I can't hit like a second baseman. And so he kind of uh, changed his offensive and defensive profile accordingly at that point. I think it still remains to be seen who is going to play third base for the Mariners. They, of course, went and got Abraham Toro at the trade deadline, traded uh, him to the Astros for Kendall Graveman, and Toro was blocked in Houston. Jerry DePoto loves the bat-to-ball skills. 
that Toro has had. And the feeling is he just hasn't had, you know, enough time out there as the everyday player. He was able to play every day for short spells when Bregman was out, but uh, they think that he needs a, a longer runway for all of that to come out. He did hit some home runs against his former team right after the trade, but that's not really his profile. He's going to be more on base. They also think that he's going to be pretty versatile in where he can play. It's not third base or bust for him. And Jerry Depoto loves flexibility and loves to move players around. They did have him at second base this year. That's not his position. He had not played there much, was still learning a ton, and you could see it on some of the throws and whatnot. But I, I don't know. I think the third base is still very open. We've made to put somebody much more established there via agency or even trade. I do know they really like Matt Chapman. It does appear that they very much like Trevor Story as well. So I, I think ideally the Mariners are going to be in good shape if we get to opening day. And Abraham Toro is one of your bench players. Yeah, speaking of third baseman, uh, Matt, uh, Adrian Beltre is a future Hall of Famer. When, you know, people will look at the roster of the last playoff team that the Rangers had, I think they will see, well, Cole Hamels was a good number one starter. You know, there's Beltre and the rest of that roster, you know, how did they win? I would think it was 94, 95 games. You're talking about the uh, 2016 season? I believe that was a season. Yeah, the last uh, yeah. winning winning record. And I uh, believe they went to the ALDS. Yeah, I, I, I want to say... Yeah, because we played Toronto back-to-back years in the postseason in 2015 and 2016. And, you know, that that was a season where a lot of guys had really good years uh, for the club. And, uh, you know, and, and it was uh, a season where, you know, Elvis Andrews was at short, Rubenet Odor was at second, and they were all doing really well. And so there were a lot of guys that had really good seasons in 2016 for the club. And, you know, I, that is so distant right now in the memory of a lot of Rangers fans because of how down the club has been here in recent years. And, you know, talking about third base, you know, a lot of Ranger fans want to see Josh Young now as soon as possible. And whether or not he'll be ready at the outset of the 2022 season uh, remains to be seen. But uh, he had an incredible year this last year in the minor leagues, both at double-A and triple-A, not just in terms of the batting average, but in terms of OPS, slugging everything. And so that's a question for us, is do we start the year with Josh Young, or does he come up at some point during the season, and perhaps Isaiah Kiner moves over to third and takes over there. But for a lot of Ranger fans, the – the 2015 and 2016 postseason teams are really a distant memory. And and to be honest, for the broadcasters, probably a distant memory, too. Yeah. One reason that I uh, wanted to bring that team up, Matt, though, is that, you know, the talent, you know, was not fantastic, uh, at least in my opinion. So I think Jeff Bannister did a fantastic job as manager. Ron Washington had some great years managing and with both of those gentlemen uh the team slipped and within a year or two they were replaced so now it is chris woodward's turn with the team getting better you know to get an opportunity to run one of those teams but what is the shelf life of a manager in texas if you're not winning you know track record seems to show you know you don't stick around (laughs) well you know uh woody got an extension and and so the extension comes after, you know, a couple of really dismal seasons. But I don't know if you can really 
truly evaluate a manager when he doesn't have a whole lot of big league players. You know, the 2020 season, the COVID shortened season to 60 games, the Rangers brought up guys that essentially had no business of being in the big leagues. They, they would have been at double A, you know, guys like uh, Leody Tavares and Anderson Tejeda and uh, you know, guys like that got big league action in 2020 because the Rangers really didn't have options of experienced guys to be able to play at the big league. So Ranger fans came out and saw, you know, what was sort of kind of marketed as the future of the ball club. But I think you can rightly argue that these guys were in over their head and probably shouldn't have been playing uh, in the big leagues. And then last year too, a lot of guys got opportunities that they wouldn't have uh, otherwise if you didn't have the kind of roster that the Rangers had back in 2015 and 2016. So really what the club has done over the last couple of years, it's hard to evaluate Chris Woodward as an X's and O's manager because he really hasn't had uh, the ammunition to be able to go out and compete on a, on a day in and day out basis. But I think that as far as Chris Woodward is concerned with the Rangers front office, I think they love him. I, I think they like the way he handles the relationship with the players, the way that he is able to uh, disseminate the information from the front office to make it usable for the players. You know, we're, we hear so much talk and everybody's inundated with analytics and the numbers that can be used. And, and you, you hear Woodward and, and the Rangers staff talking about ways to make this information uh, compatible with the players, to distill the information, to give them only what they need, information that they can actually utilize uh, in the game, as opposed to just giving them all of the information that's available and then let them figure out, well, how do I best use this? So, you know, I, I think that the front office is incredibly uh, pleased with the job that Chris Woodward has done to date. And now, now that he'll have something with which to work, now maybe you've got a, you know, a different measure instead. And of course, the front office now has Chris Young joining John Daniels to add yet another dynamic. Yeah, and I think that a big part of that dynamic uh, for the players is the fact that they know that Chris Young pitched in the big leagues for a considerable length of time. And so when players are talking with Chris Young, they're talking to someone in the brotherhood, somebody who has been through the rigors of major league seasons and knows what he's talking about from the, the perspective of experience. And so, you know, John Daniels, who has been with the club now for a long time, 15 or so years, uh, Chris Young coming into the organization and having that big league experience to be able to relate to today's players. And, and by the way, Chris Young is just really good at relating to people, period. I remember when he was still uh, a pitcher, and I believe at the time he would have been pitching for Kansas City, and I asked to be able to interview him for our pregame show. I introduced myself. He said, sure. We did a five-minute uh, pregame interview. And that was the extent of our conversation. And you guys know from being in this game that there are so many people that you come across uh, in your day-to-day -day working during the big league season. I didn't see Chris Young probably for another almost two years. And when I saw him again, again, uh, as a player, he remembered my name. And that just doesn't happen in this industry. And that's the kind of guy that, that Chris Young is. Uh, he connects with people on a very personal level. And I, I think you're right, David, that does add a completely different dynamic to the Rangers front office. 
Yeah, Brian Bannister being another example. I first met Brian Bannister when he was pitching in a double-A All-Star game in, in Portland, Maine. And I think our second ever conversation was, it had to have been a decade later, and he remembered my name, and he actually remembered some of what we we spoke about. And as somebody who doesn't know what he had for breakfast this morning, I was I was I was pretty amazed, you know. Yeah, that, and, exactly, and I'm that same way. I'm really terrible with names, but the Chris Young is just one of those guys. That, and there are a few that are out there, but he's one of those guys that uh, does just a great job remembering people and staying connected. Yeah, and speaking of names, and we are running short on time here, but uh, Shannon Scott Service—that that's the question, Scott Service. <laughs> <laughs> I could throw in on uh, Woodward and Young. They were both in the Mariners clubhouse. We knew that, and they were both players that you thought, okay, definitely manager someday and definitely front office someday and not a surprise at all. They're where they're at. And I would throw in, that probably has a lot to do. uh, 300 plus million has a lot to do, but uh, Corey Seager, you know, he would have that relationship with Woodward. Uh, His brother had played with with Young as well. I I think that that uh, probably benefited as well. Right. But uh, Scott Service, though, I think we definitely need to touch on Scott because he, of course, was in a front office at, at one point. He was second in manager of the year voting. And I am not sure that he wouldn't have got my first place vote had I had a ballot this year. That's good to hear. It's been interesting watching Scott Service because he, of course, came to the Mariners organization from a front office. He, he played, but uh, he had never coached full-time or managed full-time anywhere. This was his first full-time managing job or or a coaching job. And there was a lot of skepticism about that when he first came to the organization. And there was also a lot of skepticism in what Jerry DePoto was uh, trying to do. And this is from the fan base and not the organization, of course, but um, you knew that Jerry was going to be the numbers guy. And then Scott was going to be the guy that had to translate it to the team. And early on, you know, while he was trying to get his legs under him as a manager, he's dealing with a veteran club as a first-time manager and trying to present these different ideas. It was not an easy road, I think, for him at the start, but uh, he is incredibly organized, incredibly focused, uh, has a good amount of the personal skills that you need as well, and I think very much understood what his role was in this day and age as a manager. And it's very different. You are more managing people and managing a clubhouse and managing relationships uh, than you are pulling strings during a game. And uh, it was uh, very interesting to watch that kind of evolve over the last six years. And I'd say in the last three years, particularly when they started to tear it down, they had instituted in the minor leagues a lot of the systems that you now see at the big league level. And now it's no longer just Scott and one other guy trying to get this information to the players, but an entire staff. They are are very invested in getting the message, getting the numbers, getting the programs across to everyone. And it's been an organization-wide push to the point where If you look at the staff right now, they haven't actually even hired anybody from the outside uh, since they brought Perry Hill, Tim Laker, and a couple of others in in 2019. Now, if you look at that staff, they almost all came through the minors as well. So there's a Mariner's way, so to speak. And along that whole way, Scott has been a proponent of that. And in talking with uh, some of his coaches more recently, they say one of his biggest strengths is that he listens to everybody. 
Uh, they're not going with a bench coach this year. They've got a, a an extra coach, no bench coach. You got pitching coaches, you've got your assistant coaches, you've got hitting, hitting coaches and whatnot. But when decisions are made, it's uh, he consults with multiple multiple people and the plans. Uh, pitching plans. I know the fans just hate some of the moves that they see with the bullpen in game. And I tell them all the time, this was all mapped out before the game even began. He does not leave things to chance. He does not roll the dice. He doesn't manage by gut. Uh, He will manage by feel before the game. If it means going up to a player and talking to him or a reliever and trying to figure out if he really is good to go that night. And he does that. He checks in with everybody every day, but once he gets into the game, he stays, he sticks with, the preparation that they did before the game and uh, over the last two years in particular to see him you know, put all of this into action while dealing with what everybody else was. I think managing a club the last two years is just, I cannot imagine you go back to, you know, 2020 and, and COVID and all the protocols that everybody has to go through and didn't know when you started out, it was, well, hope this all works. And uh, I think they are more comfortable with the protocols and, and, and how they go through their day-to-day right now. But things were very different in 2020 in particular, and things, you know, not quite to back to normal right now. But uh, he has done a masterful job in dealing with that, dealing with the um, social justice issues that came up uh, a- a- as well, uh, being a proponent for him and, and, you know, a champion and and an advocate for his team and his players uh, in a very, very tough time. Uh, throw in that, you know, some of the controversies that have kind of swirled around this Mariners team when you have the team president going to a breakfast meeting in Bellevue and saying a bunch of things that was bound to really anger, if not all, most players on that team. You know, that was something that he had to deal with, had to deal with a very unpopular trade at the deadline, had to deal with a superstar who was leaving in not the most graceful manner at the end of the season. And he was able to uh, persevere through all of that, all the while pushing the team to 90 wins, which I think most would agree was an overachievement for this group. So uh, he had so much on his plate. I think he should have been manager of the year because of everything that I just said and what he was dealing with. Nobody had him anywhere near 90 wins this year, uh, a young team, a growing team. And uh, he just, he has a uh, great ability to uh, juggle and to balance and, uh, you know, to, to keep himself open to those that are in that clubhouse. And uh, he has been a huge, huge part of what we have seen. And it didn't happen overnight. We've seen this evolve since he arrived. And speaking of uh, persevering, I think that we have uh, somehow survived the technical issues and uh, discombobulation of this episode. Before we go, though, I do want to do a real quick hitter here. You know, this is a real Monty Python and now for something completely different. We have the early baseball and golden days era, you know, results coming on Sunday. It's hard to put you guys on the spot because you really probably haven't dug into it. But do any names jump out as people that you really feel should be selected, you know, by the committees? One one only name that I was looking for, and I think it's one of the greatest injustices in baseball and needs to be remedied as soon as possible, which unfortunately is too late. But Buffalo Neal needs to be in the Hall of Fame. I cannot imagine that we will not see that happen this time around. Yeah, Matt, 
Yeah, and I would, I would, I would definitely agree with that. I had the opportunity, now been about 16, 17 years ago, to meet Buck O'Neill. And uh, anybody that has had ever had that opportunity to meet him, uh, what a treasure! Uh, but uh, all that he has done in the game and for the game, uh, to me, without question, uh, he deserves to be uh, in the Hall of Fame. What a beautiful man uh, he was, uh, and he touched so many people and. And when you talk about the Hall of Fame, you know, I think that, and, and in, this is any aspect of the Hall of Fame, uh, what's it called? It's called the Hall of Fame. It's the Hall of Famous People in the Game. Uh, and Buck O'Neill, to me, is right there near the top of some of the most famous people that have been involved in the game. Now, to me, there you, every year when people are considering people in the Hall of Fame, you, you bring out the statistics. You know, there are certain parameters for making it to, into the Hall of Fame as a player, um, and those parameters need to be met. But was the player famous? Did that player or individual have an impact on the game that brought them fame? So I, I, I don't put a lot of thought into who should be and who shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. But when it comes to a guy like Buck O'Neill, I think for sure he definitely belongs. Right. And I will third this, that he definitely belongs in. I'll throw Minnie Minoso and Dick Allen's name out also as being very worthy. Hey, again, you know, to the listeners, sorry for the occasional discombobulation, but I would like to thank both of you, Matt and Shannon, again, for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Hey, Matt, can't wait to see those Rangers on the field. <laughs> can't wait to see you guys, Shannon and David. Thanks so much. Thanks. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Hello, I'm Ben Clements, and I'm joined by Jason Martinez. And Jason, have you been offered a six-year, $140 million deal by the Texas Rangers yet? Not me. Not me. I, I mean, I'm still waiting. We still have it. So today is, is December 1st. Sounds like uh, business is still open until the end of the day. So I'm waiting for the offer, man. Yeah, it seems like we are the only two people the Rangers haven't signed. And I have to say, I'm a little offended. <laughs> and the Rangers are a lot better than they were. Signing me, I don't know what that's going to do to their projection, but you know, I think they've gone from how what are they? How many did they win last year? Seventy, sixty? I think I think they're yeah. I think, I think we're getting closer to five hundred ish territory, and we still have a long way to go. Um, it might not be <laughs> finishing their off season moves might not happen for a while, but um, yeah, I think I think they could still get a little bit closer to where the Astros and the Mariners are. Yeah, they once they went sixty and one hundred and two last year, and they certainly won't do that again. I don't think they've they've added quite a bit of talent, and really that's that's been emblematic of what's been going on this offseason overall. Like they they struck early, like everyone has, and like many teams who were on the outside looking in last year, they're being pretty aggressive. Yeah, and and I think the only surprise there is that it's it all happened, you know, within a few few day period. You know, I think we all knew the lockout was was a possibility. It's not not there yet. I think everybody's been saying for weeks like 99% chance that, that the owners are going to lock out the players, you know, once the contract is up. Yeah. Um, but if you just look at the Rangers situation, where they are as far as their rebuild, new stadium, this is the year we knew they were going to spend. And there was, you know, they had hinted at it. Um, looking at their payroll, you know, I think we knew they were going to make some big moves. And I, and I think the reports were like, okay, $100 million dollars, it, it, you know, adding $100 million to the payroll this offseason is, is, is pretty likely. And they've already, I think they're about 70, $75 million 
into that already. So um, yeah. they could still do another big move. They could still do several smaller mid mid level type moves. But yeah, that's I mean, and they're just one team. You know, we basically had like a whole month's worth of roster moves that that just happened in in a span of just a few days. Yeah. Um. I mean, what, I don't know what. I think people are surprised. I mean, you're surprised at, at how at how crazy it's been, right? Absolutely. Okay, so I think the question is like, why why did this happen? And that's what I've been thinking about. Why why did it happen? And this is so cool. How can we how can we make it happen in future off seasons? How can we incentivize you? Right. It feels like basketball almost. Yeah, and and you know, I think you know, as somebody who's been covering the off season, you know thoroughly and and been a fan of it for most of my life i don't want it to end like (laughs) at some point and then have to wait two months for for training but i do like that you know it's late november i wouldn't mind if it was like mid-december like right right after the uh the winter meetings where there was just a sense of urgency to just get all this stuff done and then maybe hey we take a break for christmas and then we reconvene in january Finishes finish things up, and, and and then spring training is right around the corner. I mean, what are your thoughts on what, why this? Why do you think players were were so you know and and team and owners players and teams were, were so willing to get these things done before the lockout? Yeah, it's very interesting because if you look at the way that most off seasons go now, there's no deadline, and so what happens is that players just float, and I'm not even sure what causes deals to get done eventually, except for People just want to have some certainty before spring training starts. But deals were getting done in, you know, in December, in January, the end of December, early January, just whenever, whenever it was convenient for both sides. And it didn't seem like there was a lot of urgency anywhere. And so it just seemed like knowing that there wouldn't be activity for any of December, you thought, oh, they'll just drag on longer. I think the deadline matters a lot more than we gave it credit for. Like if you just said all league business needs to be done before December 1st, or you can't do anything until spring training starts, like, of course, there'd be a lot more signings because players don't want to wait till spring training to figure out where they're going. And teams also don't want to wait till spring training to figure out if they're getting a shortstop. You know, like if the Rangers were going to go into spring training with neither Marcus Semyon nor Corey Seager signed, well, that would be weird. And not knowing would be very weird for them and the players on their team, I think. Yeah, I think I think that makes the most sense from from a player's perspective, especially where you you go like, look, this is this is their break from from a really long baseball season, and so wouldn't it make sense to kind of know as early as possible? Say, okay, I got my I got I got my contract. I know where I need to go for spring training. I need I know where I'm playing this year, and you know, family obligations as well. It's like, yeah, okay, we we kind of know what's going to happen. Now let's just sit back and relax for a few months, as opposed to now. If you don't have a contract, you don't know when they're going to be back. You don't know when you you're going to be able to sign. Right. And let, let's say you know it's re, you know let's say they agree agree to something like mid even mid February late February. It's like spring training is is starting. Yeah. And you don't have a contract. You don't know where you're going to play. Right. You don't know how this new CBA is going to change things. And so all of a sudden, I think I think a lot of guys are like, I'm just going to get this done right now. It doesn't seem like teams are lowballing them on offers. These guys that are getting paid. Yeah, you know, they're getting paid what they were expected to get paid, and they're just like, "Yeah, I'll take that deal now." And then, I, then I could just not not worry about anything else for now. I think that there's something to introducing this deadline. So there's this concept in negotiations called brinksmanship, and the way it works is basically 
if you're negotiating kind of an antagonistic deal like this, and look, I mean, these people work together, but at the end of the day, the, the team wants to get the player for less money and the player wants to get the wants to get more money. And if you have some far off deadline, let's say there's a that there is a January 15th deadline to get a deal done. And if you have a deal that you like okay on December 15th, well, there's not a lot of rush to accept it, right? Because you know you have 30 more days to try to push the other side. And so you don't need to give them your best and final, and they don't need to give you their best and final. Because you know that on January 14th, the day before the deal, then you can say, okay, fine. Like, all right, here, here's what I'd actually do. So that tends to make any negotiations go to the last minute. It's like why the trade deadline all happens on July 30th and that kind of stuff. Now, there normally isn't that in the offseason. Normally, you can just kind of keep going forever, whatever. But now that you know that you have to do a deal by December 1st, or you're not going to get to do one for maybe months, now when a team says, hey, here's my last and best, the player is like, oh, uh, all right, cool. Like, th this is good enough. This, this is what I wanted. And they're willing to take it. I think that that's kind of happened to both sides here where, like, Scott Boris loves stalling. And when you have this deadline where if you stall past this deadline, you don't know when you're going to play, then you're more willing to come to the table. Same for teams. I think that doing something like this, not <laughs> the lockout, but doing something like this where you have a an enforced transaction freeze for all of December or for all, like, I don't know, maybe it's a Christmas-related one. And you say December 15th through January 10th, we're not going to have any transactions. I think that would... uh that would really do a good job of forcing a lot of transactions earlier into the offseason. And I'm with you. Like, it is going to be kind of annoying when there are no trades or there are no signings happening in the second half of December and the first half of January. But I think it's kind of worth it to have this fun week of bonanza and thinking about all the teams. And then, honestly, how much are you going to be thinking about baseball? Like, the second half of December. I've got other stuff to do. I'm seeing family and traveling. It's a good time to have no deals happening. Yeah, and I and I'm used to always having something going something going on baseball related, but it it has gotten to the point where it's like one deal happens a day, you know, a new rumor pops up, maybe two or three deals get done on one day, and it, you know, it is it's stretched out and it's like, okay, well, at least we always have baseball stuff going on. But I think look, I mean, there was I think there was nine guaranteed contracts signed last November. Right. There were a few others that were like split contracts for 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 like minor league guys that, that got put on the forty man roster, and I think there were only two of those that were that were multi year deals. It was Mike Miner and, and somebody else. And so this November, I think we're like close to fifty. Most of them are multi year deals, and then uh, you know when we come out of the other end of this, there's still Carlos Correa, Freddie Freeman, Rodon, Trevor Story. You know, you got Kershaw, Bryant, so much more drama. And there's and there hasn't been a lot of trade activity either. So it's like we had two really, it's like divided a first half off season, which is really, really awesome. And then whenever the second half of the off season starts, there's going to be a sense of urgency because I, you know, there, there might, if it, if it drags on a while, it's going to be like, oh, we got all these guys have to sign in a matter of, you know, a couple, a couple weeks. So yeah, I, I I prefer this if they can if they can figure out how to make this happen, um, and we'll take a break. Hey, I'll I'll take a break. I, I need you know I'd be happy to take a break. And where you say okay, I don't even have to pay attention to to my notifications because nothing is going to happen. And that yeah. right right now that's only that's pretty much only limited to Christmas maybe Chris Christmas Eve. Right, and, and mean, even then it's like there's stuff that does. Your prowlers lurking. Yeah, it can happen, but I think in the last few years, I think they've all kind of 
I don't know if they've they've had to actually have have to say it to each other, but I think they all kind of know like, hey, let's just take a break on yeah on these three or four holidays. I mean, there was a trade on Thanksgiving last year, right? Well, so yeah, I, I think it, there was a Jerry Depoto trade. Yeah, of course. I mean, hey, everybody else is not paying attention. <laughs> let's right. Let's go in and make a deal now. Yeah, so, yeah. This yeah. it sounds like I pretty much agree with you on this. It would be nice if there was some kind of first half, second half, off season style. I don't actually think baseball suffers for not having anything to talk about in December. Look, we're going to care about baseball because you and I really like baseball and write about it for a job yeah. on purpose. But the average person is not really like, oh, what's what's the latest baseball news on December 18th? They're just not. Like, basketball is kind of picking up. There are bowl games. The NFL is getting right down to the wire. It's a reasonable time to have a have a gap in baseball coverage. And if they can find some way to harness this and... I talk to a lot of my friends who are kind of all sport followers and they're very into baseball right now. And Mm. that doesn't normally happen on December 1st. Normally everyone's just given up on baseball and they check in again at the beginning of spring training. So I think it, I think it's very nice if they can separate it from the lockout, which sucks. Yeah. I mean, the negativity is just, it's, it's, that's the, the, the bad thing about it. Cause it, it could actually, you know, like I said, this, it could be a really cool off season with the first half and a second half, both really, really full of, full of really, really cool stuff that, that that's happening with, with all these free agent signings, there's going to be some trades, all that, all that stuff. But you know how a lot of baseball fans are going to be like, Oh, these greedy players, you know? And, and, and it really, if, if you could just ignore that, there's no, transactions for however you know however many weeks or you know months hopefully not months it's not going to affect any anybody at all these are negotiations they 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 have to happen the owners have all the leverage and the players need to fight 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 just to get a few little make make a little tiny bit of progress there and that yeah. and that's and I think and it's necessary and pe- but most people don't understand they don't care they, they just go you're all rich you know and, and I think that's unfortunate because not all baseball players are rich a lot you know a lot of them are and right. the thing is is that they are rich the ones that are rich are rich because they're great baseball players some of the best baseball players in the world that also worked really hard to you know. So they have that combination of talent, work ethic to get paid. Okay. So, but that's who they are. If they weren't baseball players, it's not that they're not capable of of doing other things. It's just that that's who they are. They've always been baseball players. (laughs) That's what, you know, they could probably be young enough to go do something else if they had to, but that's who they are. Owners, on the other hand, are super rich. They're billionaires, not because they're baseball owners. They're baseball owners because they're billionaires. Because yeah. they're billionaires. This is not going to hurt them if their baseball team is not making money. They can wait it out. You know, it doesn't matter how old these guys get. And these billionaires all think they're going to live to be a hundred years old, and then they're going to move to to another another planet and live another hundred years. They're not worried about how how old am I and how much money can I can I make? The baseball player, if you lose your age 27 season that really hurts you i mean that that's that's uh so so leverage wise it's no it's no contest like the owners have all the leverage i marginally disagree with you on that just because of the way that ownership has gone in the past call it 10 years if you look at teams balance sheets to the extent that you can and a lot of times you can't teams are increasingly getting into stuff outside of the strict business of running a baseball team you know that they got Ballpark Villages and stuff. That's the name of the Cardinals one. I don't know the specific name of everyone, but 
the Cubs own a big chunk of Wrigleyville and the Braves have the battery. Teams are increasingly investing in stuff around the stadium, pouring a ton of money into improvements like that and taking on debt to do it. And basically, I understand their idea. They're diversifying their revenue streams a little bit. And also they're making the thing more profitable without taking any cash out. But a lot of them as a result of that, and then as a result of the uh, fanless 2020 season and kind of fan impacted 2021, are not in the, the best financial situation for the team compared to like, they've made a ton of money in the past 10 years, but they've kind of painted themselves into a corner because of the way that they've invested that money and the way that they've kind of levered it up with debt by buying a bunch of real estate, basically. I actually do think that a work stoppage would be more problematic to at least a large subset of owners. I mean, the Yankees don't care, right? And Steve Cohen doesn't care. He's, I think he has like $20 billion in the bank or something. He can handle it. But there are, there are owners who are owners of their team, but the team is a significant portion of their net worth. And I think those guys are kind of dividing the owner's leverage. I mean, one way that you can see that this is the case, that ownership thinks this deal is not going to really crush the players, is look at the deals they're signing. I mean, if you were thinking that ownership was going to get a big win out of this or that like that we were going to stick with the status quo and everything would be just like it was in 2020, then every contract wouldn't be beating kind of the crowdsource estimates. But everyone is signing for kind of pre-pandemic deals, which is great and I think makes sense given the forward economic picture of baseball. But I don't think the owners are acting like they have the hammer in this negotiation. I mean, I don't think anything earth-shattering is going to happen. I don't think they're going to change the service time rules significantly or anything like that. But I don't think this is a, a situation where the players are going to get their clocks cleaned again due to lack of leverage. I think the yeah. owners are not in a solid position that way. Yeah, and I, and I think they think of this as, I mean, that's the thing is, I say they have all the leverage because at the end of the, the day, they're rich for the rest of their lives, no matter what. They're not going to get, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not going to affect them if things just go badly as, as bad as possible. But yeah, I think you know, your point is, is very important is that they still, they run this as it's a business and they run it like all their other businesses that have obviously been very successful. And so, you know, every dollar, every dollar that they spend is very important. And that's why I think analytics have been, have been such, such a big part of the game the last, you know, however, however long that all this information has been available to them. Cause it's like, yeah, how much money am I spending on this guy? Okay, why I'm trusting this, you know, this scout that you, you know, I'm trusting these 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 old scouts that you know former baseball players that are telling me that I should sign this guy and you you trust him. Okay, okay, is that should I just take this guy's word? Show me some numbers, show me the data, right. and, and it's like I'm gonna spend all this money. So, and I think that's important to to understand that they are they treat it like a business. They want to make money. If they lose money, they're pissed off. So, so I think we tend to think of it as. You know, you you used to have three billion dollars. Now you're only worth two point nine five billion dollars because something went wrong, um, and you're pissed off. But why should we? <laughs> you yeah. still have all this money. But I think they don't think of of each individual business that way. Think of it as like everything else. Right. I'm running a business. I needed to make money, or else it's not successful. And then you know, maybe you know, may, maybe. You know, and their you know cocktail parties around all the other rich dudes. They like to brag about <laughs> this kind of stuff. Yeah, and I will say the way that teams are set up now. If you missed a season, I mean, the players would get crushed. Obviously, they'd they'd miss their pay for a season, and that really hurts. But teams would 
take a hit too. I mean, if teams have no revenue, they wouldn't make any TV contract dollars, right? They're, if there's no season, those contracts aren't paying out. I, I think I'm pretty positive on that. And if they don't also don't take in any gate, but also still just owe the, the debt service on all the real estate they bought, that hurts. You could lose $200 million or something as a team. That wouldn't be like an outrageous number. And that that is something that, I mean, if you go to this owner and you say, look, we're trying to really squeeze down on the players and like, I think we can get another 1% edge in the long run in terms of the revenue pool. And the owner says, all right, that's cool. But if you're wrong, I'm going to lose $200 million, right? Like right now, like, like right now, I don't, I don't know how much the lower tier owners are going to go for that. I mean, you saw Cleveland is making a capital call to try to increase payroll this year. That's crazy. They're literally asking the minority owners of the team for extra money so they can put players on the field next year. I don't think they're going to be super pleased if there's no season. Yeah, and I think I think it's challenging to try to get in the head of, of billionaires, but I do try to think it think from the, these aspects as well. Because, like, you know, we just hear of somebody's net worth, right? I mean, yeah. You know, in the billions, that doesn't mean that they can just take that money and just do whatever they want with it. And then when you have investors and, and all these other people that are involved, it, it, it is, I'm sure it gets complicated and I'm sure it gets stressful. And, and I think that's, you know, on the one hand, I think, I think the, the casual fan is, you know, doesn't care about that, but the casual fan doesn't care about the baseball players either because they have so much money. And those are the faces of baseball. They don't know who the owners are. I mean, some yeah. people know who the owners are, but if things, if, if if baseball gets shut down, it doesn't matter to them who whose fault it is. Right. They just go, oh, that guy, you know, that that guy I saw with the, with the stupid bat flip and acting, you know, and, and and they don't they don't like for whatever reason they don't like him. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who gets blamed. Yeah. So so that's that's the stuff that happens, and owners know that's that's how. It, owners know that's how it works too which is why if certain things are leaked to the media and the media presents it in in a way that that is just it's pretty much just like red meat to these to these kind of these types of fans that are just like oh those stupid play greedy players uh them and their bat flips they're so rich already and they're so greedy and i i hate that man and i think and that and i think i think the more of people in the of baseball people in the media that are aware of that and will call them out for that. I think that that helps. That helps, but it's still. I think the owners know that that does that does have an effect. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I think you're right across the board there and I'm interested to see how this ends up going, but I'm hopeful that because both sides have such kind of entangled interests at this point that it's going to end up not too punishing like for both sides. I think that yeah. probably the players are angling for a slightly bigger piece of the pie and i think they'll get it i don't know exactly know how but i think that that there's not going to be any seismic shifts this time i was a little bit more worried you know say six months ago but just the the way that these negotiations have gone and the fact that there aren't quite so many just grandstanding proclamations anymore feels good to me i did like the uh the proposal for an expanded playoff did you see that yes and i don't i don't mind it i know a lot of people say that it's they don't want expanded playoffs because then teams aren't going to try as hard during the regular season because they, if they act, if they can get to the playoffs with 80, 83 wins, I don't, I mean, I, I think on the other hand, it's going to force some of the other teams to the teams that aren't, that aren't very good. I mean, they, they might, instead of going like the Orioles probably aren't going to spend any money this year. And I, I don't, and I don't, I don't know if it's, it's more than just like, yeah, we suck. <laughs> Why are we going to spend money? Because we're nowhere close to 
to, to competing. But the closer you get, you the better your chances are to make the playoffs. The more money you're going to spend, and I think there's some other things they can do there to to kind of encourage teams to not just try to get in with 80, 80, 80 wins, eighty three wins. I'd like the incentive to win the division has to be be there. The incentive to be the top wild card has to be there. I think there needs to be incentives for these for these teams to yeah. keep on pushing. But I do, I don't mind having, you know, for 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 a Padre fan, for me being a Padre fan, and my team's been in the playoffs like five times, six times in my in my lifetime. Yeah, I would love to just get to the playoffs as, as often as possible because that's that's the most exciting time. Anything can happen. It's like it's a long season, but then you get to reset. All right, we did enough to get to the playoffs. Yeah, and I actually think that this, I'm not gonna say it's perfect in terms of the the incentives but it, it does do a lot of the things that you want it it really rewards being the the team that wins the league i think that's really good mm-hmm. it does reward being the first wild card right because you get to have home games for that series that that's important i think it does a good job if you're going to expand playoffs of at least keeping the uh like keeping the incentives towards winning and i thought that the the system that they had in 2020 didn't do that at all and so it's definitely going the right way, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I mean, I think if you have to give the owners something that they want, that's it. I mean, that's it. If you're going into these ne- negotiations, not, not thinking that, that then that, that's, yeah, it's not going to get anywhere. You have to, this is, it seems like it keeps getting back to this. So yeah. And, and, and for the players to be like, well, we think it's going to hurt this type of player. Okay. Then what can we do to, you know, so yeah. it's, it's always give, give and take. And, and I think obviously that's what a negotiation is, but we don't know what's, going on behind the scenes not a lot has leaked out <laughs> um which is probably a good thing it's a good thing right. that, you know maybe they're negotiating in good faith and they're they're making some progress here so yeah i'm hopeful and i yeah i, I, yeah, I, I think the expanded playoffs is going to be it's probably going to happen if the players are going to get anything that they want yeah and i i think that something that dan zaborski has pointed out before is if you just expand the playoffs in a bracket form you know Go add an extra round to the playoffs, but keep it the same way it works now. The the best team plays the worst team and in a best of five series. That is really bad for competition. That just means teams won't spend. I think that that's pretty clear to me. But the way that this is doing it, where the higher seeds get all home games, the top wild card is going to get three home games and every other wild card will get none. That's a pretty meaningful edge. I think the owners have done a good job, like actually thinking through how they could get expanded playoff money without... Because there's this argument that they don't actually want the money. They just want to reduce incentives to competition. This proposal looks to me like they actually want to get the money while keeping the competitive landscape roughly the same. And I think that's really good. I, I do like that they're like coming to the table with a better idea than the, the crappy ones that they were pitching in 2020. That's a good sign to me. And if we end up with this playoff expansion in exchange for, I don't know, uh, some kind of weird salary floor that isn't quite a salary floor and changes in the way that uh, that service time is calculated or maybe an increase in the minimum salary. I'll be happy with that trade-off. I think that, that's, that this yeah. proposal is a reasonable way to not be a race to everyone having 82 wins. It really is still useful to have 95 or 90 wins in this format. Yeah, and, I, and I've always thought that, you know, if you're thinking of, of as far as it's from the business aspect of, of we have... All these fan, all we have, you know, it's a billion, you know, however many billions we make in this business, $10 billion business or whatever, how many fans are there? The biggest percentage of those fans are, are people that don't pay that close of attention. They're, they're casual fans. And the thing that kind of can take you to that next level 
a lot of times is when you have that rooting interest. Okay. And then when, when that rooting, that team that you're rooting for has this exciting season, they get to the playoffs. So even if you, 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 you're one of 14 teams that makes the playoffs, that's like, that's when all those casual fans tune in and that's when you can get a percentage of them to kind of take them to the next level and become bigger fans. That's those yeah. are the ones that end up finding fan graphs and, yeah. you know, getting, getting more involved in, in, in becoming a baseball fan rather than just like following it casually. You go to the game, have some beers with your buddies. You kind of know who's on each team, but I think, I think it is an opportunity to kind of really focus on those, those fans and, and get them to the next level. Yeah, I can give you a, there's actually a very lucky uh, like experiment, a natural experiment, that they had this exact format in 2020 kind of out of necessity. And I know some casual White Sox fans through my wife. She grew up in, uh, in the Midwest. And the White Sox went to the playoffs as a road team and lost in three, all on the road. And, you know, that was it. That was, that was their playoff experience. And all of my White Sox fan friends were like, oh, man, this team is great. I'm getting into it. In a way that they wouldn't have if they just, you know, missed the playoffs or played a, maybe if they played a one game wild card and lost. But I think having the three game series, but giving the home team an advantage, like a meaningful advantage, I wouldn't mind if they, uh, they gave them literally, literally some runs just to make it even more likely the home teams would win. But I like the system. I'm happy that they are at the table. And I don't know. I think, I think this is going to work out pretty well. Yeah. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. So now I guess we just have to wait and see. Like I said, this is this is December first. Um, I think we are at one p.m. Eastern time. I think deadline is end of day, right? End of day yep. is is okay. Contract expires. There's no agreement. We're locked out. Um, no transactions until until they're uh, until, until they've come to an agreement. So um, <laughs> we'll see. But I be, at least we have the on the other side of that a lot more a lot more exciting things to come before the season starts. So. I'm not too worried about it, at least not right now. I agree completely. And, and we could still talk about where is Carlos Correa going to sign once the lockout is lifted? You know, right. what trades are still going to happen? What team, you know, this team still needs to add some pitching. Um, this team has some, you know, some infield depth. Can they make a trade? I mean, there's all this, all this stuff we do in the offseason anyway. So it's not going to stop us from talking baseball. Yeah, exactly. And hey, we've got stuff to do in December now. Thank you, Carlos Correa, for not signing. Please don't sign today. Yeah, I think, yeah, it'll be hard to get physical done, get agreement, physical done by the end of the day. I don't, I don't know if we're going to see any more signings today. It sounds like maybe some trades might happen, but yeah, I think we might be done for now. Yeah. So uh, on that note, uh, happy last day before the lockout, everyone. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon about the offseason maneuverings. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Matt Hicks and Shane Andrea for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider recommending it to a friend. We don't have a podcast advertising budget, so word of mouth is a great way to help us grow the show. And make sure to check out that Fangraphs.com shop and our free newsletter. It is the best way to keep in touch with everything we do. We hope you have a great week. Talk to you next time.